Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. In September 1945, with the surrender and occupation of Japan, drastic changes took place and altered the way of life for the Japanese people. None was as revolutionary as the revision of the Japanese Meiji Constitution. The revised constitution that came out of the occupation enfranchised the people of Japan, but most particularly the women of the country with the inclusion of Articles 14 and 24. This would not have been possible without the complete support from the Supreme Commander Allied Powers, General Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur was a vocal supporter of Japanese women's rights, and specifically documented this sentiment within his autobiography, Reminiscences. Of all the reforms accomplished by the occupation in Japan, none was more heartwarming to me than this change in the status of women. The purpose of this podcast is to explore the story of the occupation of Japan in terms of women's rights. Within an incredibly short period of time, Japanese society experienced a complete social revolution. Women who had been denied enfranchisement were suddenly equal partners in the re-emerging nation. None of this would have been possible without MacArthur, certain Japanese leaders, and individuals under his command, as well as the agency of Japanese women. Before this monumental event took place, one question must be asked. How were women's roles defined prior to World War II? Traditionally, women were the central figures of Japanese family structure, as wives, mothers, and the most noble domesticated warriors of the home. They played a more subservient role to their male counterparts within the public domain as well and had little or no participation within Japanese political society. Women could neither own land nor hold public office. In the increasingly global world of the 19th and early 20th century, however, The women's suffrage movement that was taking hold in the West crossed geographic and cultural barriers and took root in Japan. By becoming activists and educators, Japanese women attempted to change the system and win concessions from their government. Decades later, these early efforts of Japanese women would lay the foundation for the collaborative effort that produced the occupation-era reforms targeting the status and rights of women. Equipped with the manpower and tools to rebuild and reinvent Japan, MacArthur was a major supporter of reforms targeting women. Although he is most remembered for demilitarizing Japan, busting trusts, purging businessmen and politicians, tainted by connections with the wartime regime, and encouraging a renaissance of Japanese culture. 
Writer and documentary producer Alex Gibney asserts that he was also instrumental in promoting social equality. The women's suffrage movement in Japan was not new and had been fairly active in the 1920s when women had gravitated towards public service. These women helped to abolish the prohibition and restriction of women from attending political meetings and elevated the issue of women's equality. Much of what these women fought for would not be accomplished until the occupation. Many women attempted to lead a movement towards women's rights, but none so much as Shijue Kato, an aristocratic occupation advisor who believed that the U.S. troops arriving in Japan were the gods of salvation. Along with Kato, Ichikawa Fusei, the grand old lady of Japanese suffragettes, joined American women and the women of MacArthur's General Headquarters Constitution Committee in moving women's rights forward. Kato would become the first woman to serve in the Imperial Diet, and Fusei would be an advocate for voting rights. Another woman, Michi Kwai, an advocate of education reform, supported the occupation and encouraged further reforms that would create a new educational and social order to replace militarism and Shintoism. These women, while they had been relatively silenced during the World War II period, would go on to play a role in occupation reforms like the Revised Constitution. In order to move the country and people forward, the framers of the new constitution had to lay out a new vision for Japan. MacArthur's main goal, handed down to him by the Allied governments, was to demilitarize and democratize Japan. In order to do this, he intended to change the 57-year-old Meiji Constitution, which had enabled Japan's militaristic regime to rise. Through a revised constitution, the Americans working at MacArthur's headquarters hoped to establish a peace-loving democracy and a legal structure guaranteeing the rights of the Japanese people. Japan was to morph from a nation with a feudal past and imperial ambitions and become a society dedicated to freedom and democracy. Only then, reasoned MacArthur, would true peace be won. Even before receiving directives from the Allied governments, MacArthur had informally sketched out his political and social reforms for Japan. One night on Okinawa, en route to his initial landing in Japan, MacArthur related seven policy proposals to his staff. MacArthur's military secretary, Brigadier General Bonner Fellers, noted in his diary proposal number five, allow women to vote, and six, hold free elections. These ideas were revolutionary for a country and a people that had never experienced such reforms before, especially considering MacArthur's desire to enlist women in the process. Despite the revolutionary nature of what he was proposing, MacArthur also concluded, all the above will be accomplished through the imperial governmental machinery. At first, MacArthur possessed full confidence in the Japanese to create a new constitution, and GHQ did not take part in initial deliberations of the drafting of the document. That would change, 
Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the Constitutional Problem Investigation Committee used the Meiji Constitution as a model, but made few significant changes to the document. It was then that MacArthur stepped in and assigned GHQ's governmental section chief, Brigadier General Courtney Whitney, to lead the initiative to draft a revised version of the Meiji Constitution. This event represented a historic feat of collaboration between Japan and the United States. Men and women of MacArthur's headquarters worked with successive Japanese prime ministers, Shidehara and Yoshida, and chairman of the Constitutional Committee, Matsumoto Joji, to draft revision of the Constitution. According to General Whitney, the collective and constructive application of Japanese and allied standards set forth principles in this new constitution and define procedures that tie these basic principles together and will make them work. In short, the agency of the Japanese people and the determination of the Americans had produced a workable document. In addition to the deliberations that occurred with the Japanese committee and the members of GHQ, one of the most monumental parts of the Constitution that transformed Japan was the representation of women within Japanese society. Article 14 and Article 24 outline the purpose of marriage and family. In particular, Article 24 was one of the most revolutionary of the reforms, written by the Committee on Civil Rights member B.T. Serata, a graduate of Mills College and a 22-year-old woman Fluent in Japanese, this article covered the social reform of marriage and family, creating a new status quo that the Japanese were not accustomed to. Individual dignity and essential equality of the sexes. When the final draft of the Constitution was completed, the next step was to seek final approval. Prime Minister Shidehara and Yoshida presented the draft to both houses of the Japanese Diet which approved it on November 3, 1946, after the Emperor indicated his support for it. The new constitution went into effect on May 3, 1947. Many Japanese people benefited immediately from Articles 14 and 26. Article 14 states, All people are equal under the law, and there shall be no discrimination in political, economic, or social relations because of race, creed, sex, social status, or family origin. Article 24 states, Marriage shall be based on the mutual consent of both sexes and it shall be maintained through mutual cooperation with the equal rights of husband and wife as a basis. With regard to choice of domicile, divorce and other matters pertaining to marriage and the family, law shall be enacted from the standpoint of individual dignity and essential equality of the sexes. Ironically, Although MacArthur had used the United States as a model, Articles 14 and 24 went much farther in guaranteeing equal rights and were radical by American standards. In MacArthur's mind, this was justifiable because he saw women as a natural counterweight to militarism and believed that radical reforms like this would decapitate the elements of Japanese society that had enabled the rise of militarism. In August 1946, American historian Mary R. Beard wrote to Civil Information and Education Section's Women's Information Officer, Lieutenant Ethel B. Week, asking why General MacArthur was prioritizing women's freedoms 
in his crusade to democratize Japan. The answer came from Colonel H. B. Wheeler and Colonel Donald Nugent of the Civil Information and Education Section in a memorandum dated September 4, 1946. Wheeler and Nugent detailed General MacArthur's own belief that the integration of American women into American politics had been a positive stabilizing force in the United States and that the general firmly believed in the need to lay similar foundations in Japan. Wheeler specifically stated that MacArthur viewed the enfranchisement of the women of Japan and the affirmation of women's rights as necessary and beneficial to the country. With knowledge of MacArthur's purpose, Beard wrote an article championing the integration of women within the lawmaking process. She claimed, For the stabilization of Japan, which had certainly got too far off the plumb line, MacArthur had quickly drawn the Japanese women and to the electorate. This set a precedent not only for women's participation in the voting process, but for the encouragement of thousands of Japanese women to do their vital part within society and reform the wrongs in order to make them right. MacArthur commended their actions, particularly the abolishment of concubine and the vow to never again follow the militarists. When women did get the right to vote after the adoption of the new constitution, MacArthur later wrote, There they turned out thirteen million strong, and, departing abruptly from their traditional subservience, took strong positive and independent action to assert their position in the electorate electing 39 women to the legislative body. After the ratification of the new constitution, MacArthur never ceased to support women's rights in Japan. In a press release dated September 14, 1949, MacArthur responded to a letter from Mrs. G. Warfield Hobbs, Jr. on the topic of the status of women in Japan. MacArthur spoke of the universal nature of certain rights and how this intertwined with his personal faith in the Japanese women as one of the driving forces that made the occupation a success. MacArthur stated that the mantle of newly won freedom and individual equality was the key to achieving civic and social responsibility. He asserted that Japan's future course would be determined by the entire nation, with women free to speak their mind. Ever interested in collaboration between the United States and Japan, he also stated, any help or encouragement that the Japanese women may receive from the women of America will accordingly find its reflection in a higher pleasure of destiny. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.